The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please turn in your Bibles to Mark 14, verse 12. And before we read the text this morning, I would like to make three initial notes that will help us approach our sermon today appropriately. First of all, uh, today we're going to be reading about the inauguration of the practice that we call the Lord's Supper. It really, truly is the most significant meal that has ever been eaten or prepared in the history of the world. So this entire sermon is going to serve as a preparation for our hearts as we're going to come to the table at the end of today's service. We're going to partake of this meal together. It's a memorial that we're going to observe together directly after the sermon. So please examine your hearts in light of these words as we hear the word of God this morning. Secondly, this sermon today is going to be dealing with some of the most solemn and sometimes challenging material that we're going to ever experience in the scripture. It is a place of darkness. It is a place of grimness. It is a place of solemnity. And some of the things that we're seeing in this passage are going to be weighty. And so as we approach it, I'm going to attempt to do so without any humor. I know that uh, I'm not the funniest person in the world, but I'm not even going to try because the material that we're looking at today is not one that lends itself to any kind of laughter. And finally, uh, I would encourage you as we approach this uh, text with great seriousness, uh, this sermon is going to be heavy on outside texts. Mark's approach at explaining many of the things he puts in his gospel are very short. They are compacted. So his explanation of the Lord's Supper is absolutely the shortest of the four gospel accounts. So especially towards the end of the service, I'm going to be jumping around quite a bit and absorbing other places in Scripture. I encourage you to look to the screen. We don't always have the verses up there, but because we're jumping around a lot today, I encourage you to stay in Mark 14. If there's anything that we're looking at outside of Mark 14, it will be on the screen for you. Now I encourage you to please follow along in your own copy of Scripture as I have the great honor of reading to you God's Word. Beginning in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him, one to another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, 
one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And they all drank of it. Or, I'm sorry. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out from many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink of it new in the kingdom of God. Now these are weighty words. This is a powerful passage of scripture. Let's go to the Father, the one who has all power, and ask that he would change us today. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, this is a passage of scripture that is so necessary for us. Lord, I pray that if there is any confusion in the minds of the people, that you would please by your spirit correct our thinking, help us to be biblically minded, that we might have the mind of Christ. Lord, if there is any way in which we are trusting in ourselves or in our traditions or in our own actions for our salvation or for our sanctification, God, help us to understand that it is all of grace. Help us, Lord, to see what Christ has done on our behalf today. Lord, we ask that Everything we do for the remainder of this service would be a pleasing act of worship to you, that we would be a pleasing aroma before you. And Lord, we pray that you would change us. Help us to fix our attention on you. Help us to set our affections on you. Lord, change our hearts. Cause us to be more like Jesus, we pray. Amen. If I were to summarize the point of the words that I read to you a moment ago, into one sentence for us to chew on this morning, it would be as follows. It will be here for you on the screen as well. Jesus sovereignly orchestrated the deliverance of his disciples by utilizing the evil of his enemies to establish a new covenant that would be ratified by his own death. Let me repeat that for you. Jesus sovereignly orchestrated the deliverance of his disciples by utilizing the evil of his enemies to establish a new covenant that would be ratified by his own death. Now, in order to flesh that out, I'm going to break up this text into five segments. It's kind of a loose outline this morning, but we're just going to go through and break it into pieces. First, we'll look at the preparation, then the betrayal, then we'll consider the bread, and then the cup, and finally, we'll close with the future meal. Let's start with the preparation. Our text begins by explaining that it was now the first day of the unleavened bread. Now, this was the holiday that the Jews celebrated because when they were released from captivity in Egypt, they were told to make unleavened bread. This was for a few reasons. Leavened bread bread takes time. It takes a lot of time because you have to leave it there and then the dough has to rise. But unleavened bread is fast. You can make it very quickly because you make the dough and then you cook it and it's done. And they were told to make unleavened bread because their deliverance was at hand. It was coming rapidly. It was soon to take place. Little did the disciples know that the true deliverance, deliverance of their souls, deliverance from sin was at hand. Now, we know from the information we gather from all four accounts of this event that Peter and John were the ones that were sent to sacrifice the lamb. They were supposed to take this lamb to the temple where it was to be prepared by a priest. 
this would have been a challenging undertaking. I don't know if any of you have ever gone Black Friday shopping, but there's a, a massive line before they open the doors. I don't go. Um, I think that's a terrible, terrible thing for my, my sanctification. I, it just is awful to stand in line. I just get angry. But these guys, they went and stood in a line where they were preparing to sacrifice 250,000 lambs. And they were standing in that line preparing this animal. This meant that there was going to be a long wait, and they were dragging on as they carried this spotless lamb with them. They were either carrying it or it was dragging behind them by a, a rope alongside a mass of humanity that also had a lamb in their presence. So why do all this? Why do the people gather to kill these animals every year? It's because this lamb was being sacrificed to commemorate the greatest deliverance to that point that had ever happened for God's people. The greatest deliverance that they had ever seen, which was the deliverance of God's people from bondage in Egypt. Allow me to briefly remind you of the final plague that led to that deliverance. God had already sent Nine horrific plagues. I mean, if you go back and read through them, they're terrible. Things that we would never wish upon our worst enemies. And God sent them upon the Egyptians. God had already sent these nine plagues, but they had served to do nothing more than to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would not allow the Israelites their freedom. Finally, God spoke through Moses and he told the people, take a lamb, one without any blemish, one that's a year old, and I want you to roast that lamb and I want you to eat it. But don't dump out all of its blood. I want you to keep it. Put it in a bowl, and then I want you to dip hyssop in there. And then I want you to scrub that blood on the doorposts of your house. We see this in Exodus chapter 12, and he explains why they're going to do this in verses 12 through 13, when he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. Now, some preachers will tell you it was the angel of death that came. What does it say? I will pass through. God is coming. And I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, he is coming. God is coming. Justice is coming. Judgment is coming. This drama was divinely inspired illustration of what was about to happen. It was a coming judgment, an impending doom that was on the horizon. In this simple act, we see the beauty of vicarious atonement. What was it that made the Israelites worthy of life and the Egyptians worthy of death? They were both worthy of death. The Israelites were not worthy to be spared It was because he saw the blood and passed over them. Only the blood of the spotless lamb. If the blood was not over their doorpost, they were to be considered just as guilty and just as vile. But the judgment of God was halted. The justice of God stopped at that door because it was satisfied with the blood of the lamb. It was satisfied with that vicarious atonement and passed over. But why? That blood is of no value. Those sheep have no Cosmic significance, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 tells us that animal sacrifice has no power to take away sin. Zero. So what's the point? Why do this? Mark is subtly, by announcing the timing, reminding us of the fact that the real Passover lamb has come. 
As John the Baptist had said, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus had come. Now we know from our text that Peter and John went on Thursday morning to sacrifice this animal. They had gone to perform the rituals that would take place where they would bleed out the animal and then they would cut it to pieces. But those sacrifices, those sacrifices, they would not have continued very long. It was a two-day process. That Thursday, they would have performed the, everyone they could get in the door that day. And then the following day, Friday, they would finish in the early afternoon, before sundown. They had to have all the animals killed. Less than 24 hours from the text that we are reading, Jesus is going to be hanging on a cross just outside of those walls. And while he was hanging on that cross, those animals were being slaughtered inside of the temple. It's very possible because of the location of where the cross was in relationship to the temple that you could even hear from the cross those Passover lambs being killed. But the people don't understand. Those lambs have no significance before God. But the true lamb of God was the one on the cross. This animal, this lamb, it's a symbol. It was a picture that someone was going to come and someone was going to take sin away by their own death. Leviticus 17.11 says it this way, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Jesus was pouring out his own blood to make atonement for his people. So while the disciples are preparing this little sheep to be killed and eaten, Jesus is preparing to be the true sacrifice. Jesus is preparing to be, to be the real Lamb of God who atones for his people and to cause the wrath of God to pass over all who are in him. But where are they going to eat this meal? Our passage informs us of the interesting details, and we find them here. Look again to verses 13 through 16 as we consider the preparation. And he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and the man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When I was in seminary and living in Kentucky, the biggest event each year in Louisville is the Kentucky Derby. Everybody in America, I think, knows that this event exists. I knew about it. I didn't realize how big of a deal it is to that city. While I was in seminary, I worked a night shift at a hotel, and we normally charged about 100 to 100 and maybe $20 for a room in our hotel. But during the Derby... You had to rent for three consecutive nights, and the cheapest room was $700 a night. It is a massive influx of people into the city, and people are willing to pay crazy amounts of money to stay there. People are renting out their houses. That's when people in Louisville go on vacation, because they rent out their house for $10,000 for the week. My point is this. The likelihood of Jesus finding a fully furnished and available room in Jerusalem was precisely 0%. There is nobody that's just leaving this space available. This guy would have rented it out. So there are two possibilities here. It's possible that God had divinely and somehow sovereignly connected somebody to this man to cancel. Maybe an angel came to him and said, hey, I want you to prepare the room, but don't put anyone in it yet. 
Or it's possible, and some scholars believe, that Jesus had worked it out with this disciple beforehand. Honestly, I lean in the direction of the second option, but the scripture isn't clear enough to tell us exactly what took place. But my point is this. There was a fully furnished room that God had prepared for them, and why doesn't Jesus inform his disciples about where they're going? I think it's because Judas would have already handed Jesus over if he knew where Jesus was going to be. But by keeping that information from them, Judas was not able to hand Jesus over until the appointed time. So, the disciples want to know, how are we going to find this place? And they asked Jesus, and Jesus told them, you're going to go into the city that has probably around a million to a million point five in the city, and look for a man with a water jug. Now, this is a little bit different than me telling you to go into Manhattan and just look around for a guy carrying a water bottle. Hey, just find the guy with a water bottle and then talk to him. Follow him. Go to his house and wherever he goes in, go talk to his landowner there. No, that's not quite what it was like because back in those days, men did not carry water pots. It was just not done. Now, we live in a very cross-sexualized culture right now, but imagine if we were in the 1950s and you saw a man in Manhattan walking around carrying a purse, that would have drawn attention. People would have recognized that's unusual and he would have been the center of everyone's focus. Everyone's head would be turning. And so as you walk near him, you would see, oh, that's the guy. So whether Jesus had told him, this is our code, I want you to do this, or whether God had sent an angel or God just told this man to his own heart, this man was walking around carrying something that only a woman in those days would carry. If men walked around with water, it was in a water skin. It's just their cultural way. So regardless of how God set it up, the disciples found this man and the entire group of 12 men went to the upper room, which this room, by the way, would be ground zero for much of the important stuff that's going to happen in the early church. This place is a very significant location. Now this brings us to our third segment of the text that we want to consider today, which is the betrayal. Now, we're not looking at the action of betrayal by Judas in fullness. Last week in verse 11, we already saw part of this taking place. In fact, in the book of Mark, it only mentions the name of Judas three times. And the first time it mentions him was all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 19. And it describes him by simply saying, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him? If you're paying attention as you study the book of Mark, you should expect this. It's not supposed to be a surprise that Mark has set up, ha-ha, now look at what's happened. Judas has betrayed him. The attentive reader would note that Judas was the false disciple who would betray the Savior. But what becomes brilliantly clear in these verses is what we're about to consider, that Jesus was not surprised by the betrayal. Jesus has known the whole time. He was deeply aware of who Judas really was and what he was about to do. He knows Now, I like how commentator James Edward puts it. I love this. He says, Jesus is not a tragic hero caught in events beyond his control. There is no hint of desperation, fear, anger, or futility on his part. Jesus does not cower or retreat as plots are hatched against him. He displays, as he has throughout the gospel, a sovereign freedom and authority to follow a course he has freely chosen in accordance with God's plan. Judas and others may act against him, but they do not act upon him. Jesus is fully in control. 
He is fully sovereign over this situation. Watch for this sovereign control and free authority of Jesus as it is displayed in verses 17 through 21. Follow along as I read for you. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, and they said to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Can you imagine the weight of those words coming from the mouth of Jesus? Now we know especially from John's account that before he even uttered these phrases, the room was already filled with tension and with anxiety. The people were fearful that were in that room. They were terrified, but now these words dropped from the mouth of Jesus like a nuclear weapon. If there was any joy in that room previously, it's gone now. One of you will betray me. And then he goes as far as to say it would be better for that person if he had never been born. Jesus, the man with most mercy of anyone you have ever imagined, is saying it would be better if one of you were never even born. Now imagine being Judas in that room. Imagine hearing these words and knowing I've already told the chief priests and the scribes I'm going to hand him over. Knowing that it is in your heart to hand him over this very night. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. He knows what I'm about to do. But not only that, Judas now has every opportunity to repent. Jesus has given him every opportunity to say, Judas, I know what you're about to do. Just give it up. Just confess. Just just repent. Just turn from your wickedness. But he doesn't. Instead, he joined with the others, it seems, in asking the question, is it I? It says they all asked. Why would he even ask this question? probably to throw off suspicion. By doing this, he surely thought that he was pulling the wool over the other's eyes, maybe even thought he was pulling the wool over the eyes of Christ. Allow me to show you one of the lesser-known connections that we see in this passage to the Old Testament. When Jesus said that the betrayer was one who was dipping bread into the dish with him, it did not serve to reveal who the betrayer was. All of them had done this. So why would he even say that? They'd all dipped the bread, so why make this statement? It's likely that Jesus is referencing what we read in our Old Testament reading this morning, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 9, which says, In English, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That phrase, who ate my bread, is actually very similar to what we see in a Greek translation here, and when you compare them both in Hebrew, they're basically identical. So allow me for a moment to jump to the Old Testament and explain why this is so significant, why this connection is so poignant. Ahithophel is a man who is one of David's most trusted advisors. He served alongside David and he counseled David in his kingdom. But when David's son Absalom, when David's son Absalom temporarily usurped the kingdom, Ahithophel, David's friend, assisted Absalom. He betrayed David, and he sought to destroy David. Ahithophel was a notoriously wicked man. Ahithophel betrayed 
David. And it was unparalleled in the story of David how great this betrayal was. Yet before the betrayal took place, consider how the Bible says David thought of this man. 2 Samuel 16.23 says, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. David thought this man's word is gold. It's as good as the word of God itself, which is a very foolish thing to do for anyone. But Ahithophel's counsel was so trusted that David trusted him fully, like he trusted God's word. But unlike God's word, Ahithophel could not be trusted. Now, we're not going to consider all of the ways that Ahithophel sought to destroy David, but allow me to read to you one important part of the story from 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse three, verses 1 through 3. It's going to be here on the screen behind me. It says this, Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. Does that sound familiar? Ahithophel made a plan to approach David in the middle of the night. He created and crafted this plan to scare away and capture all of the other followers so that he could ensure the death of the true king. Now, we're not going to read all the details, but Ahithophel's plan did not happen. And instead, Ahithophel committed suicide by hanging himself. Does that sound familiar? So Judas is the greater Ahithophel. When David says, my friend has betrayed me, even the one who has eaten my bread, he's speaking of Ahithophel. And now when Jesus says, it's one who is eating my bread, one who is dipping into the wine with me, I believe he is comparing the two and declaring, Judas is the greater Ahithophel. He has pretended to be a close friend of mine for years, only to hand me over to be crucified. This act is probably the greatest sin that has ever been committed in the history of mankind. But please let me remind you that Jesus was still in complete control. He was absolutely sovereign over even the details going on in Judas's heart. Now there are some who see a contradiction here. They will say if God is in control, and if it's God's plan that Judas would betray Jesus, then Judas couldn't get out of it. It's not really Judas's fault here. I would ask you to consider the words of John Piper from his book, Spectacular Sins. He says, Satan does not take innocent people captive. There are no innocent people. Satan has power where sinful passions hold sway. Judas was a lover of money and he covered it with a phony external relationship with Jesus. And then he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. God didn't make Judas do anything that he didn't want to do. God allowed Judas to do exactly what he wanted to do. He loved money, and he pursued his greed, even to the extent of handing over genuine, eternal treasure, the treasure of heaven, for a bunch of coins. What a fool. Likewise, though, you and I stand before God responsible agents. You and I stand before God responsible 
for our sin. God does not make you do it. The devil does not make you do it. People act upon people's desires. What we do is what we want to do. Out of the heart comes all sort of evil, Jesus says. Yet what we intend for evil, God means those things for our good and for his glory. So Judas stands condemned. Jesus was right to say it would be better if he had never been born. So with all that in mind, let's look now to the elements of the meal that are mentioned here in this text, beginning with the bread. Verse 22 reads this way. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. This step of the supper is much deeper than we see here on a surface level. During the traditional Passover meal, one of the first things that you would do is you would take a piece of unleavened bread and you would break it. I think this probably came about later, but later on they would begin to pierce it. And they would wrap it up and they would hide it. And if there were children, later on in the meal they would be responsible for going out and finding it. During this meal, it doesn't appear as though there were children present, so it's likely that they wrapped it like they would do now, even at a Seder meal, and they just leave it there on the table, and the food is hidden within that wrapping. And then, after the meal has taken place, after they've eaten the lamb, they would bring out this bread. This bread is called the afikomen. It was unleavened bread. Leaven in the New Testament is often compared with sin. It is an invisible virus that spreads through and infects anything that it ever touches. If you have a piece of leavened dough here and a piece of unleavened dough here, do not get them anywhere near each other because the leaven will spread. The bread must be pure. The bread must be without any leaven. But the bread must also be broken. Now, although none of Jesus' bones were broken, his body was brutalized beyond recognition. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then he was buried. Just like that afikomen is hidden from sight, Jesus was hidden away in the tomb until the time came for him to become to come forth and for him to be raised by the power of God. And now Christ is for the church. His body was given for us. He experienced suffering that we cannot even imagine. And why? For us. Now, although Mark doesn't use these words, he doesn't include this phrase, Luke tells us that Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. It is for you. I am not doing this needlessly or without meaning or purpose. This is for you. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I am naturally a very selfish person. I don't automatically think about giving my stuff away. I don't look at my things and think, who can I give this to today? I have to experience the grace of God in my life to desire to give things and to do things outside of myself and beyond myself for other people. But Christ loves his disciples, both those who were with him in that room and those who were to come after, including us in this room now who are saved. This is broken for you. He gave himself. Why? Because the disciples are worthy? No. What made this ragtag band of disciples, this group of tax collectors and fishermen, capable of receiving this not because they were worthy just one thing it's because god had set his love on them 
Because God loved them. Jesus loved them. Despite their ignorance, despite their fear, he loved them. Now we're going to see Peter as the pinnacle of this truth. He is put forward as an ex- a, a, a picture of this. Later on in the chapter, he swore that he would not deny Jesus. Yet he did three times before the sun even rose, before the rooster crowed twice. He couldn't even stay awake to pray with Jesus in the garden. He was fearful. He was pathetic. He was weak. Yet Jesus loved him and gave himself for him. As we prepare our hearts in few moments to observe the Lord's Supper, this is one of the elements that we must consider. It is to remind us that the pure, spotless, Holy Son of God humbled himself to the point of death, to the point of dying on a cross, that he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that the chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon him, and that by his wounds we are healed. But as as if that wasn't enough, as if that was not enough of an expression of Christ's love, he continues and he says in verses 23 and 24, and he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Let's consider for a moment this cup. In a traditional Passover meal, there were four cups that were prepared before you would even eat the meal. And during the meal, you would drink them at strategic times to add weight and meaning to those parts of the meal. In a traditional Passover meal, right after supper, which is when they drank this cup, was the third cup. The cup that Jesus shared with them is the third cup, which is called the cup of redemption. So by giving them this cup, Jesus was informing them, redemption is near. It is at hand. It is this that I am purchasing with my blood. It is redemption that you are about to receive. It is right here. Your freedom from the penalty of sin, it's right here. Your freedom from death and hell, it's right here. You will no longer be slaves to sin. The devil will have no claim over you any longer. You will no longer be dead in your trespasses and sins. You will be alive to God. You will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness where you currently dwell, and you will be transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And you will go from being an enemy of God to being a friend. Even greater than that, even deeper than that, even more meaningful than that, to being his child. That is what is at hand, but it was not the wine in that cup that would do any of this. This wine cannot save them. Likewise, the juice in these little cups has no value to save you. It cannot do anything to make you more like Jesus. It is not the juice in these cups that saves. Jesus said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. In other words, the contents of that cup were merely symbolic of what was about to happen on the cross. In a matter of hours, Jesus was going to be hanging there, his blood pouring forth from his body. And Jesus, the one who knew no sin, would become sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22 In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.7 You, who were once far off, have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2.13 Through Jesus... God reconciled to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.20 
This cup of redemption that they were drinking was a symbolic image, a picture of what Jesus was about to do on the cross. He explains to them that the shedding of his blood is going to serve as a seal of the new covenant. This past summer, we preached through basically the life of Abraham as we're continuing our summers in Genesis. And as we did, we saw that Jesus, I'm sorry, that God the Father makes a covenant with Abraham. And this covenant was a unilateral covenant. It is a one-sided covenant that the covenant was made by God and that there was nothing that Abraham had to do. There were no conditions. It was a promise that God would do certain things for Abraham. There were no terms of service. And we saw God tell Abraham, what I want you to do is cut an animal in half. And traditionally, the two parties would walk between the pieces together. But that's not what happens in Genesis. Rather, God walks through the pieces with God. God promises, I will take both sides of this covenant. Later, God makes another covenant with the people of Israel. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. He made it with the, with the Israelites and came through Moses. It was a bilateral agreement. And in it, God said, if you do this, then I will bless you. If you do this, I will curse you. There were conditions. Spoiler alert, they broke those laws and they failed. The covenant was broken by the people. Therefore, they did not experience the blessing. Instead, they experienced the curse. But Jesus fulfilled that law. Jesus kept it perfectly. And now Jesus is telling his disciples that he has completed it. He has fulfilled all righteousness. So that covenant has been completed. And there is a new covenant that I am ratifying in my own blood. I'm not going to cut an animal in half and walk between it. Instead, I am developing a unilateral covenant that is going to be sealed and ratified by my own blood. Jesus fulfilled that law and we see the covenant that he is making had been foretold by Jeremiah the prophet, who said in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. It's not like that one. It's completely different. It is new. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And now Jesus is saying, this cup symbolizes the fact that I have created a new unilateral covenant with no conditions. That I will create in you a new heart. Ezekiel explains it as the heart of stone being removed and the heart of flesh being restored in them to being placed in them by God. Those people can't perform that surgery. It is God who does the work. And in us, it is God who does the work. The cup that we're about to partake in, it's just juice. It's not magic. It's not a potion. It's not some mystical libation that is able to make you wise or holy or more spiritual. It's juice. But why do we do this? Because it points to the fact that the blood was spilled to serve as a signature on the contract, which says, I am paying for the sins of my people. Or as Jesus said, the last words before he died, to Telestai, it is finished, it is paid, it is complete, it is done. It is a declaration that our sins have been wiped away. Jesus paid it all. Or as Hebrews chapter 9, 15 explains it, 
Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We have a new covenant in his blood, so we have considered now the bread and the cup, but that's not the end. That's not where Jesus leaves it. There's another statement tucked away here at the end. I don't want you to miss it. This is going to be our final segment that we look at today before we observe the Lord's Supper. It comes to us in verse 24. Please look again to Mark chapter 14. He says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now this meal that we're enjoying together in a few moments, this is designed as an act of worship that ties together the ages. Everything in all of history up to this point we are at in our text was a funnel of events that was leading to the cross. And after the cross, everything that has happened has been for the purpose of building the kingdom of God until that day when he returns and we will be with him and we will experience what we call the marriage supper of the lamb. We will be gathered together and rejoice and celebrate with God. Now, although this is a unilateral covenant, this act of worship that we are about to see is a bi-peripheral act. We are looking in two directions. We are looking back to the cross and forward to the coming of Jesus. And that is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author. He's the one who bought us and the finisher, the one who is coming back for us of our faith. Verse 26 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In just a moment, we too are going to sing. We're going to sing because the Bible commands us to do so, and we're going to sing because it's a way we encourage our brothers and sisters. But we are primarily going to sing because that is how we can call out our love to the one who loved us first. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you tell us in your word in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. God, I thank you. I thank you. Lord, please don't let us move quickly on from that. I thank you that you sent Jesus to die for your people. Lord, I thank you for the imagery that we have here before us, the imagery that your son had displayed for us, that he set up for us, that he inaugurated on this night that we have read about today. God, I pray that you would help us to love you by worshiping you in spirit and in truth, that we would love you by being reminded of you and your love, that we would love you and worship you by fixing our attention and our affection on your son. Please, God, today as we come to the table, let us do so in a manner that is worthy, a manner that is holy. Please, God, if there is any deep sin in our heart, let us be repentant of that now. And please, God, encourage us, strengthen us, and prepare us for this coming year that we might be a lighthouse of the gospel in this dark world. Please, God, we ask that you would do these things, and we know that you are able, we know that you are powerful, and we know that you are sovereign to work in them. So, God, we pray that you would do this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.